Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, what happens when a CMO leaves the iconic McDonald's and joins another iconic brand, Arnott's, just after one of the world's leading private equity firms paid $3.2 billion for the company? It conjures up all manner of toe-cutting and cost-out scenarios given private equity firms are famed for fast, profitable turnarounds and exits. The US-based KKR is likely to exit Arnott's at some point, maybe in the next three to five years. But Jenny Deal is backing her new owners to the hilt as pro-growth and not cost-cutters. KKR and Arnott CEO George Zogby want to and are investing in the business, in the brand and marketing for expansion here and across Asia. And the business is going okay, it seems. The latest figures I could find, and maybe Jenny will update me, well, we, we all hold out hope for that, but had Arnott's sales rising 6% to $1.3 billion, uh, for the 12 months to July 2020. Jenny Dill does seem to be smiling, and that's not just because some of the plans she's been working on to reinvigorate and invest in product innovation, brands, and make Arnott's snappy again with a younger set is working. Take a recent direct-to-consumer stunt, as she calls it, to sell, wait for it, Tim Tam perfume. It sold out in a day. Yes, I did say Tim Tam body perfume. It was a cracker of an idea uh, to continue that terrible biscuit analogy. Uh, but a bit over 18 months into the gig, Jenny Dill has big things rolling out and big things in the wings. She wants to put Arnott's back on the map for old and young alike, build out new healthy and indulgent adult snacking products, relaunch the brand and grow. To boot, she has some sharp views on what the rise in retailer media means for FMCG and traditional media, the emerging area of advertising attention measurement, and lots more. So welcome, Jenny Dill. I've waited 18 months for this. Um, we saw you make the move, and you've you've well done. You've held out till now, but too late. We're in. Um, not dissimilar, actually, to a conversation I had with our media CEO, Jane Huxley, this week, um, the old Bauer, that's the old Bauer and ACP Magazines group, which is also owned by a private equity firm uh, called Mercury Capital. You're not burnt or scarred by private equity owners uh, yet anyway. They're investing and your budgets are growing. So um, tell us some of the things that you've been up to and, and what's, been the, what's been happening for 18 months at Arnott's. It's a, you know, it's a hugely iconic brand and you, you've got stewardship of it. Welcome, by the way. Thanks, Paul. Great to great to finally chat. Yeah, I thought I'd dodge you a little bit longer, but obviously didn't get away with that. But door stopped, as they say. <laughs> door stopped. Yeah, no, I'm absolutely delighted to be leading the marketing for Arnott. Such an iconic brand, Australian-made products, 150 years of history, and so much potential. What really drew me to the business uh, was the opportunities that we had for growth, both here and more broadly outside of Australia. Um, we've obviously a big player. We've been around for a long time. We're part of the fabric of Australia, but everything we looked at, we still felt we had a lot more opportunity to grow. And I think with our with our new owners in KKR, we've proven very very quickly that we're willing to invest to buy new businesses, to invest in capital to permit further growth, and to invest in our brands and our people. And that's such a super exciting place to be as a marketer. Um, a little bit surprising, right? I know that the perception of, of private equity is changing. They are actually not necessarily all being 
the big hard line uh, cost cutters that they may have done in the past. Um, and were you surprised, or I guess it was part of the conversations when, uh, in joining, was it that you wanted to know the, what was going to happen? Yeah, I think absolutely. You, you need to understand the growth model and the investment model that they've put behind the business and understand where the private equity firm is deriving their valuation. For us, luckily, it's growth, and that suits me perfectly. Um, I don't think many marketers want to walk into a cost-cutting business. So very, very lucky to uh, to be working on Arnott's and working under KKO's ownership. And so what have you, what, what has happened? I mean, you've got, we've talked about this earlier, um, you've got big plans for, for Arnott's. There's, there's, there's blue sky for it, even though it's a, you know, as you say, sort of an old brand in, in, in an aging um, product category, perhaps. So that's my perception. You might correct me. But um, I think that, you know, there's a lot of people that are, buying biscuits that maybe the type of biscuits Arnest does are a bit older. That's that's there, it's holding, but you've got you've got broader thinking, broader plans. Yeah, absolutely. Um as we you know, as I entered the business, we stepped back and did a lot of work from a consumer spaces perspective to understand the growth roadmap and understand the opportunity areas. We were really clear that we've got a very successful core business. But where the growth is coming from in the market is things that are either more better for you, more nutritious, more delicious, or they're more indulgent, so much more of a treat. And we saw that real bifurcation of the market in, in both of those areas. And to compete and win, we couldn't just do one or the other. We have to do both. We have to be more better for you and we have to be more indulgent. So it felt like an amazing opportunity to really um, inject some new thinking and to, to reinvigorate the Arnott's business and allow us to really go and compete in those new growth spaces in the marketplace, whether they're in the biscuit aisle or in adjacent macro snack categories. It feels like fair game for us. Right. So and I was going to get there. So, you know, biscuits is the core um, and you you want to orbit around that or you're going, to, you're going beyond because it has been what happens there. And look, if we just backtrack, I know a couple of years ago I saw, you know, Arnott's getting into chocolate, um, chocolate blocks, um, you know, some premium sna- chips and snacking stuff that wasn't in the biscuit aisle. Um, they've all gone, I think, have they? So what what happened there and what, what are you going to do in replacement? Why is expansion into other categories going to work if they didn't? Because I assume they're gone. Yeah, and I can't speak too much to the history because I was uh, knee deep in a very different job in a different category at that point in time. Um, but what I can say is that we've got such a really strong heritage in sweet biscuits and in savoury crackers and snack crackers and in uh, more traditional water crackers, plain crackers, saladas, sayos and the like. So we've got amazing foundations. And when we went and looked at what the consumers were asking for and what we felt we could do with our existing assets, brands and equipment, we just felt there was a lot more to do starting in the biscuit aisle first and then moving beyond that. And, you know, I think you've seen over time, you know, over the last 18 months, we've gone and bought three, three other businesses. Uh, and we're probably going to look at buying some more as well as part of the growth plan uh, that we're trying to unlock over the next three to five years. It's really exciting. Just for those, just for those that aren't across it, what have you bought, and, and what are you, and how are you managing those? We've set up another division uh, within the business, within the Arnott's Group, and we bought a business called, or created a business called Good Food Partners, which was um, purchasing Diver Foods in partnership with Chris Diver. And then we've bought a a New Zealand business, a beautiful little brand called 180 Degrees, which is a premium cracker business. And we are running very different models on how we figure out how to unlock those and uh, doing the right thing by those brands and businesses to figure into the growth plan. And so when you say running different models, it's through retail or so what's different about the models? Yeah, the, re- the retail model is very, very similar. The way we run it from a corporate perspective is very different. So we've got the big 
Harnett's Biscuits business, which is the the scale and the products that everybody knows and loves. And then we've got much smaller, much more nimble businesses being run with very, very lean teams and a very entrepreneurial approach to uh, to unlocking growth and to bringing innovation to market and to driving the business forward. So big business on one side and then lots of little entrepreneurial, um, almost founder-led businesses in the mm. way they run internally, which is really exciting. And you don't necessarily want the mothership to take them over. You want them to 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 stay sort of slightly autonomous and run their own run their own race. Is that right? Yeah, I think there's plenty of examples where big companies have bought a special little brand or a special little boutique business, tried to fold it into their systems and processes, and stifled the life out of it in the process. We don't want to do that. Mm. Um, we want to mm. make sure that we're creating the right circumstances for those business to continue to grow, and make sure you're not signing them up to run in a big corporate meeting machine, but you're letting them go and really figuring out how to, how to you know, meet consumers' needs, work really positively and proactively with their customers and unlock the magic. So let's just get back to the, quickly to the biscuit category first and how it skews older. You want to change that up a bit and you want to bring Arnott's back to a sort of a, um, a ubiquitous Australian sort of um, sensibility to it, I guess, um, which may have, it's still there. It, it, it's lasting, I think, in maybe older demos, but maybe not as strong and younger. You, you want to get that back into the younger side, younger end of town. Is that right? Yeah, I think there's a there's a re-energization job to do with Arnott's. And when you think about our core portfolio, it probably has been aging. The sweet biscuits and the cream biscuits um, has probably been aging a little bit over the last few years. But the work we're doing with our biggest brands like Tim Tam and Shapes is very much bringing it back into that 20, 30-something age range, uh, making it really relevant, making it fun, making it delicious and um, and converting consumers in that age range rather than maybe appealing to uh, consumers a little bit older that grew up with Arnott's decades ago that still have Arnott's in their repertoire. Um, so but w- what do you do? What sort of products? You know, you talked about sort of, you know, Tim Tam's bringing it, I guess, um, back into a into the frame of, of 20-somethings. But what products will, you know, take it younger for you and what sort of marketing will do that? Um, you, how do you do that? How do you get? How do you bring them? How do you get the youngies back? Yeah, so we've got we, we've found a couple of little gems in our portfolio. Things like TV snacks. Everyone has this amazing relationship with TV snacks. They'll tell you they love the malt sticks or they love the original. And it was again a little bit tired, a little bit dated in terms of the brand. We uh, rebooted it, we re- repositioned it, and we launched a partnership with Krispy Kreme, which just delivered donut flavoured donut-shaped biscuits into a category. So it really brought some fun back in. And I think what we saw with the work we did through digital and social and the work we did through our traditional advertising, um, we just brought new people back into the biscuit aisle for the first time. Um, We re-engaged with a group of consumers and teenagers that we weren't really talking too much. And it had huge success instantly, which was really, really encouraging. Well, let's go to the Tim Tams bit first because you've gone back to the future to sort of um, reinvent, right, which is getting heritage and the genie's back. That's part of part of the plan? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there's a, there's a wonderful old saying. I've had a lot of bosses over the, over the years that worked for P&G and there was a great saying that the fruit was in the roots. Um, so whenever right. you pick up a brand or a piece of business, you, you spend time uncovering what's made it really special and really successful in the past. And you find some great common learnings. And what we found on Tim Tam was when we're at our best, it was the genie, it was three wishes, it was that moment of indulgence. There was a little bit of sass in the personality. There was a little bit of cheek and irreverence in there, but it all was very, very Australian at the same time. And when we're at our most successful in the Tim Tam history, we were doing those things. So we went back to it with a with a new modern update interpretation and hopefully more big things to come 
on that front over uh, over the next year or so. So does that mean we'll see more sort of uh, higher profile stuff from Tim Tams and the Genie in ads and beyond then? Is that what you're saying? I'm trying to get something out of you here. Absolutely. We're working on it now. We're, we're busy we're busy baking it up or cooking it up, as we like to say. Good. Um, more to come soon. But, uh, you know, I think, you know, we did a, uh, just for Tim Tam Day, which was 16th of February, we did a, a direct-to-consumer trial, if you like, and a bit of a stunt as part of Tim Tam Day where we sold Tim Tam perfume. We had some nice fuzzy slippers and a Tim Tam mug as well. So just merch for people that truly love the brand. And um, we're a little bit nervous about the perfume. It smells delicious. It smells literally <laughs> like a Tim Tam. And um, we were a bit nervous that people wouldn't want to buy them, but it sold out within a day. It was $90 for a 30 mil. 90 bucks was it? So that's premium. That's premium stuff. Totally. Um, and you know the slippers are amazing, and the and the mug was amazing, but the the perfume really caught us by surprise. So it just shows that you know we've got a legion of fans out there that want to engage with the brand differently, not just buying mm. you know their standard pack from Tim Tams with the regular grocery shop, but we've got permission to do more fun and engaging stuff with the brand in the right way. I was going to ask you, you did mention, you know, DDC direct to consumer and so, so many uh, consumer brands are looking at that and working out whether they can do it. What's your what's your take on this? Are we going to see Arnott's go direct? Example being maybe uh, Nestle has borrowed from Coke and did some, you know, personalised Milo cans with people uh, for a special event. I think it was Christmas or some event they geared it around. Um, so there's a lot of consumer goods or FMCG companies um, looking at this. What's your position on direct-to-consumer? Will, you, will we see something happen there? Yeah, we have a much bigger ambition in the direct-to-consumer space, but we're trying to figure out what that means at the moment. Our instincts tell us that it's a great brand engagement tool and that we should do things there that are unique or we're trialing or we're not ready to commercialise in the supermarkets in, in a big way. Right. So we could do personalised, customised, limited edition flavours. More about the merch, though, I think is where we'll probably end up playing and key seasonal times. So there's, you know, three or four key seasonal times throughout the year where Tim Tams are really awesome um, and we might want to do something then. I don't see us ever getting into try to sell a packet of Tim Tams direct to a consumer. I don't think that's our game. I don't think that's what we do best. I think we've got some great customers that do that really well for us. So we don't want to get into that space, but we do want to figure out how we use it as a great brand engagement and a tool that allows you to really uh, get in and get involved with us. Outside of Tim Tams, um, there's, there's a, you've got a huge product range. What have you identified uh, in that classic biscuit category for, for growth before we get to maybe what's happening in other snacking areas for you and what your plans are? But other brands there that may get some more attention from you? Yeah, so I think that the two biggest brands we have, obviously, are Tim Tams and Shapes. Um, Tim Tams is infamous globally. Um, it's something that Australians around the world typically fill up their suitcase with when they're travelling overseas, which hasn't happened too much lately, but it's really taken off. When the British Prime Minister, Boris, pulled out in that free trade agreement, were you around then um, and he said, we're going to have Tim Tams you know, in the UK and they're not going to be crazy priced and everyone loves them, we want a bit of Australia. Did that have any impact on sales here in Australia at all? Was it too distant? We, we, we had a lot of requests for export to uh, to the UK, which is great, right. for, great for Aussie jobs and great for Aussie business. Um, we like half of that deal, which is selling Tim Tams to the UK. We don't so much like the other half, which is bringing penguins in. I don't <laughs> I don't see the need from an Australian perspective. <laughs> yeah. we, I think we can cover that market well and truly with Tim Tams. Yeah, so did, but it, did it work in Australia though? Did, did, Boris, did Boris move product for you here? 
or it was more demand from the UK? I, I think there was a bit of demand from the UK. We didn't notice any any real blip in Australia. Sorry, I digressed. It was just <laughs> it was such a it was such a um you know a great bit of promotion which you didn't even ask for. Um, so you know with the prime prime minister doing that. Um, so you were talking about shapes and what your plans are there. Yeah, so shapes is another amazing brand. It's actually our biggest brand in the portfolio, and uh, you know as. Again, oh, it's bigger than Tim Tams, is it? Yeah, you wouldn't think. Oh, that, right? right. So mm. you know, again, for decades, the flavour you can see was a real differentiating proposition for that brand. So we've gone back to those roots, and we've gone back to you know the slight repositioning and the re-energisation of the brand, and then unlocking things like Shapes Mini Bites, a much more snackable, lighter, poppable format, which has uh, been in the market for almost a year and it's doing really well. Uh, and we've got big plans from a from a flavour perspective and where we think we can you know, take shapes in the future. Again, it's another brand that people really want to be a part of. We did a partnership with um, the Typo Group where you could get your own personalised shapes pack a couple of years ago, a couple of Christmases ago now. And it, again, it sold out so quickly. It was just a great opportunity for people to to engage with the brand in a slightly different way. So if those if those sort of personalised and consumer sort of, you know, one-off initiatives work so well, uh, why, why are you not do? Will you do more? Will you do more and more? Or is it just you, you blow the novelty? <laughs> That's the plan. Right. That's okay. what we're testing with our DTC model. So whether we're choosing to go in with uh, retail partners, whether it's you know Peter Alexander with Tim Tams PJs, whether it's um, selling actual products that are personalised, we're going to continue to do that. Oh, right. We're also looking at a model where we might be able to do some of that direct to consumers ourselves. Look forward to seeing what happens there. Now we've talked. You, you've we've sort of danced around this notion that you want to update the Arnott's brand in market. Now, I really want to sort of understand what you mean by that because obviously it, it is iconic, but what's what's lacking with it or what do you want to bring more to in and around Arnott's and, and when? As I think about Arnott's, it's such an iconic brand and iconic business that's been part of Australia for 150 years now. It feels like we need to re-energize it. So I don't want to be the the marketer that comes in and repositions and redoes all the packaging and then redoes all the advertising and says my job is done because that doesn't feel like what we need. But just making sure we're making that connection with consumer relevance. So in, in the market, what what do you mean by that? What does that what what do you want it to be? And how are you going to do it? You know, we played a really strong role through lockdown when people were stuck at home. The baking trend went crazy. Everyone had their hand in the bicky jar. So I think a lot of people have fallen in love again with the Arnott's brand. But I think we just need to move our our marketing on a little bit. And one example would be um, under the previous ownership, we didn't really do digital and social marketing. Um, things like social posts had to go back to head office in the US to get approved with a three-week turnaround time. So it just didn't really happen. Um so, and that's that's only two years ago today, right? So wow. we've invested in our, you know, really upskilling our team. We've added extra resources to be able to handle our social in-house and be able to transform our old complaints line or consumer information line into a customer experience team that is really delivering really positive engagement with consumers and using it as a social listening tool, but also using it as a really positive way to drive engagement with consumers and then feeding that back into our social and digital marketing team. So we're driving a lot more in that space, mm. which again is just you know, nothing massively wrong with the way we were marketing, but there was just an opportunity that we were missing and it felt like the, the opportunity to re-energize the focus 
and what we were doing and how we were doing it. So when you when you ramped up your activity uh, in and around the, your social channels, Jenny, what did you see in terms of um, people uh, piling in to the social feeds and following? Did it did it did it take off? It really has taken off, and it's uh, it's been a great delight to watch. So we've focused our digital and social efforts on our two biggest brands of Tim Tams and Shapes, and then also across our total Arnott's Biscuits range. And as part of the Arnott's Biscuits range, we've been talking about you know serving suggestions and um, recipe hacks, so things that make it easy for consumers to you know turn our biscuits into a delicious snack straight out of the bag or into something that they can might be able to dress up as you know, a, a meal or as something they've created dessert from. And it's it's really working well. So consumers are engaging in the brand, in some of our stories, in some of the, the provenance stories or the ingredient stories, the how we're making them. And, you know, I think there's been a couple of great things that the team did, you know, before my time, they released a couple of recipes through social media in the first phase of lockdown back in March, 2020. And, um, they were approximations of our recipes to allow consumers to try and bake at home where they could. And, you know, just it drove a whole new level of engagement for us. Um, we've really upped the ante on, on most of our social channels as well, and consumers are really responding. What happens there in terms of um, we're going to get into some measurement stuff shortly, but how are you, what is your KPIs, what are your measurements for success in and around the new energy and, and, and attention you're bringing to the social channels? Are you judging it by engagement, numbers? Or is there a link straight to product sales? Can you track that, Jenny? Yeah, we can't quite track the link, direct link into product sales yet, but we're working on that. So the immediate measures that we are tracking to are engagement. And we are also tracking to the equivalent media value that we're creating through okay. the, um, you know, what we're doing in the digital social channel. So that we're looking at it the right way as part of our overall marketing mix. And the work we're doing uh, with our marketing mix modeling and attribution modeling is trying to help us really pinpoint what's working and how and why, so that we can then double down on the areas where we'll that are working the hardest for us, that are getting the best results. And we'll get to that because I'm intrigued and can't wait to hear what you think about retailer media, uh, which is obviously getting lots of noise at the moment. But before we do that, you've talked about the biscuit category. You sort of you sort of touched on adjacent categories. So what else will we see from Arnott's um, in this sort of big grand growth agenda that, um, that you're pursuing? Uh, will there be some very different categories you play in or just new products and innovation within the, you know, within the, the core categories you're in? Yeah, I think as part of our kind of growth vision, we're going to be anchored in the biscuit category for the next year or two. Um, there's still a lot of work we can do there. But then when you think about broader macro snacks, there are some fairly close in adjacencies. Um, there's a lot of things in the deli aisle, for example, that definitely within the biscuit category remit. There are a lot of things elsewhere in the in the supermarket store or in the macro snacks world that are very very close in. So we're we're working through what we should do and when. Uh, we've got some exciting ideas up the sleeve, but uh, not too much I can give away today. When so when will we start to see them this year? Do you think? Yeah, I think you will. We're we're in the process of launching our new premium range of of products under Arnett. So this is you know basically the top shelf equivalent. Great ingredients great tasting products that just are that bit more indulgent. So we've got sweet and savory ranges as part of that. So we've got the Obsession chocolate range. We've got new sourdough crisps coming out. We've got a new flatbread dippers range in addition to the cracker chips that have already been in the market for about two years now. 
And right. uh, those are all moving out literally as we speak across the country. And, you know, we've got big hopes for those. They're really premium top shelf products from Arnott's. And does, does that, do those new uh, premium products cannibalize existing um, uh, products that you have, lines that you have, or is it eat yourself before you get eaten? Is that sort of the strategy there? <laughs> we believe they will be highly incremental. I, I don't think anything right. you do in a in in a one category game is ever a hundred percent incremental. But what we know is that there are plenty of consumers out there are searching for a bit more of a treat. You know, people are spending less money in restaurants and delis and cafes than they probably used to. They're spending more time at home. They're looking for that little treat after dinner, whether it's sweet or savory or the treat before dinner. So, and they're willing to spend a little bit more for that than they would for their, you know, regular standard occasions. Um, so we're happily tapping into that trend and uh, are working hard to make sure it's as incremental as it possibly can be to our business and to the category as a whole. So, you know, when I said earlier in the in the intro that you know, you're hitting sales rise of about 6% in 2020 to 1.3 billion, what are those numbers in 2021? You know, we, we've had a good couple of years as Arnott's. We, we've played into consumer trends when people are at home more and indulging more. We've, we've, really driven the business hard. We've managed our Australian supply chain through all kinds of craziness to make sure that we can keep our products on show and on shelf. And not all of our international competitors have been able to do that. And, you know, we're happy to, you know, keep making new Australian jobs and keep growing our business so that we can uh, we can keep those jobs going. So I take it then at least you've got sales growth momentum. You're still you're 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 still rising. That's as that's as best best as I can get from you, right? We are growing. Yes. So we've you've talked a lot about indulgence, Jenny, but you did mention earlier on about a new focus as well on better for you. So what does that look like and when does that happen? Is it something sort of radically different from Arnott's that we will see or is it, you know, again, incremental? Yeah, I think what, the way we're looking at better for you is obviously we've got some existing better for you products in our portfolio, things like Vitaweets, things like Cruskets, thing, things in our cracker portfolio that are inherently wheat, <laughs> a little tiny bit of salt and a little bit of fat for flavor, but are inherently, you know, either really low percentage fat or really high percentage whole grain that allow consumers to um, you know, replace bread with crisp breads for lunch, for example, with Vitaweets, with tomato and avocado on top. Um, an easy way of getting into meals and, and making a healthy snack in the afternoon. Right. But we know there's a lot more that we can do in the better for you space. We've moved into into gluten-free almost a year ago now uh, with a range of three products that are for the first time. We could put the Arnott's name on gluten-free products. I think anyone who's tried gluten-free has had a really bad experience with some stuff that they've been forced to eat almost because that was their only choice, but they haven't really enjoyed it. We've launched a range of three products, which includes our Scotch Finger, our Choc Ripple, and our Tiny Teddies that taste just as good as the gluten versions. So for the first time, anyone on a gluten-free diet's really got some great tasting choices. And, you know, we're selling around three times the forecast on a week-to-week basis. So it's just shown us that there's plenty of opportunity in this space and it is hugely incremental when you get it right and you deliver a great tasting product. So we're going to continue the gluten-free journey and we're going to launch another few products in, in the next couple of months. And that is really exciting because it will get us into a, a chocolate biscuit as well. Um, right. So there's another three coming there, which is, I think, is going to uh, be exciting. These, yeah, are these all, by the way, big mainstream uh, launches, or are you doing it differently? You're not. It's not the big, you know, big hitting mainstream media advertising awareness building campaigns. Or are you doing a bit of that, or is it something different uh, in terms of what, how you're going to market? We're trying to employ a different model because we know for gluten free about. 
25% of Australia is really interested in a gluten-free diet. Celiacs are about 2 to 3% of the population and then a gluten-avoiding diet makes up the rest. So we know we're not talking to everyone when it comes to gluten-free. Mm. And we've tried to be a bit more targeted and we've tried to be a bit more choiceful about the media and making sure that we're, we're reaching the people that are truly interested rather than necessarily the, the broadest media campaign that we've ever done. We are putting a significant investment behind it though because it's, it's something that our consumers are really asking for and it's something that's working really hard for us. Well, 25% is not insignificant at all. No, it's, it's, it's a big chunk of the population. And you know, every, pretty much every day of the week, I find another person who's choosing to avoid gluten for a period of time. So it's definitely something that's a growth space for us and that we're going to continue to invest in and we can continue to expand our product portfolio and continue to grow. And, and kids, what are you doing in kids? There's a lot of adult stuff. There's a lot of indulgent. Better for you. What happens in the kids area? Yeah, we're working on a really exciting range for kids that is, is going to be a combination of both nutritious and delicious. And the way we've built that is based on the Healthy Star Rating Guidelines. And we're, we're targeting a minimum three and a half health star. So we've got a range of products that's three and a half and four health star that we're going to launch middle of the year. And, you know, it'll be great, amazing products from Arnott's that you know and love. They'll be sweet and they'll be savory uh, in multi-packs for kids so that they can go into school lunch boxes and, you know, be had as an after-school treat. And uh, to make it even more fun and exciting, we're going to partner up with one of the hottest kids' properties around and, and really turbocharge the, uh, the opportunity and make it equally fun, nutritious, and delicious. So if I was to speculate on what the, one of the hottest kids' properties around is, what is that? <laughs> I'll, I'll call you back in two months and let you know. Ah, so you know how you're not going to tell, right? <laughs> Why the kids' stuff? Is it you need to be in that or do you see that there's business to be had? I, again, I think when when you're able to put the you know really positive healthy star ratings on snacking products and deliver uh, a nutritious and delicious product for kids, we know mums are asking for it, dads are asking for it. They're constantly looking for for snacks for they can put in lunch boxes or you know after school uh, snacks as well. We we know there is a there's a real business opportunity there, and you know we're we're not marketing to kids, we're not breaching any of the guidelines. Obviously, we don't. That's not what we do at Arnott's. We will have the right marketing campaign that appeals to mums and dads, and and um, and creates a, a business opportunity there, and hopefully makes it easier for them, just that little bit easier. So before we go more broadly, there's a lot of stuff happening in the business. Um, there's a lot of innovation. There's a lot of marketing. By the sounds of it, your marketing budgets are growing. Is your team growing? So what happens with the with the Arnott's sort of uh, um, overall investment? You got more people on, or are you doing this with the same people? No. Um, so our our marketing investment is growing by more than our business growth rate, which is a good thing for any marketer in any given year. Um, and that's going to continue to grow through the strap plan horizon. And then we're adding headcount. So, you know, we've added a digital and social team that just didn't exist two years ago. Um, so we are adding resources into the team. And then we're creating new ways of working as well. So, uh, you know, I think a lot of FMCG businesses have really um, uh, siloed functional structures that maybe don't enable the easiest way of working across functions when you're trying to deliver, um, you know, something new to market, whether it's, uh, you know, a growth initiative, whether it's a new channel or whether it's a new piece of innovation. And we've moved to a new structure where we've actually, we're calling them business teams and we've incorporated marketing in there, R&D, category management, 
we've incorporated supply chain and finance and insights to allow you know, much smaller teams to be responsible for a piece of business and to figure out how they collectively, collaboratively and constructively um, create the future of the business without the need for big functional silos and lots of corporate kind of overhead structure in the way. So does that mean that those teams are geographically located together if and when they're in the office or how does that work? So you don't have a marketing team hanging out with marketers, you have a market, your marketers hanging out with broader business teams. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there are times when we'll come together as marketers to do functional training and then there are times that we operate, which is mainly in the day-to-day with the rest of the business teams to unlock the growth that we're going after. Have you seen that structure? Where did that come from? Um, was that was it a genius idea from Jenny Dill? <laughs> I wish. Um, no, we were, we were searching for a, a way to help make the business feel a bit smaller uh, in terms of right. how to get stuff done. How, how individuals can have a personal influence over the agenda and how they can feel that real sense of achievement and accomplishment. And what was getting in our way was a kind of a slow, sequential, siloed approach. And we had to, we had to find a way to just break down some of those barriers and encourage people in the right way to, to work together to unlock the opportunities that we wanted to go after as a business. And you did that through COVID. So how, what's the, the initial sense on it, it, its, its impact? Yeah, there's some really good early results um, that we've got on the board. Um, I wouldn't recommend structural changes during COVID. Everything just gets a little <laughs> bit harder, obviously. Um, you know, I think everyone has to work that bit harder when you're on a screen to make sure that everything's heard the right way and interpreted the right way. I think it's much easier having sort of structural conversations and forming new teams when you're face to face. But sometimes when you're stuck at home for six months, you just gotta you just gotta get on with it. So, you know, I think we've got to go back and, and bring the fun back as people come back into the office. We've got to do all the things that you would normally do when you're forming a new team face to face. You know, go and have a couple of beers at the pub, go and have a coffee, um, make sure we're doing team lunches and all those sorts of things that seem to have disappeared while everyone was working at home, trapped at home on screens. We're close to wrapping this up, but let's go to more broadly to your thoughts on on some of the, 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 the broader market and marketing uh, sort of developments that are happening in debate. Um, a lot of noise going on around retailer media um, or your key customers um, are in on it. You know, Woolworths and Coles are really pushing hard on this now and everyone beyond as well, whether it be pharmacies, uh, Etc. are all jumping in, in on this whole notion now. Where how does it how's it playing for you? Your classic centre consumer goods territory. Um, are you seeing that fit into your channel mix? What's it changing with your channel mix? And how does it work? Brand investment versus you know that that last you know whatever you call it foot before the purchase. Um, how, where do you, where do you see retailer media um, landing in a couple of years for you and the market, Jenny? It's a it's a very interesting space, obviously. When you've got a, a highly concentrated business in a couple of customers like you like ours is, um, we will lean into the retailer media space, and we have done a, a bit of work in the space already. I think the way we're approaching it is uh, figuring out where it fits in the total mix, keeping it in the right perspective and the right proportions that it that it belongs in, and then making sure that everything we do in that space is is the priority and the choices that work for us and making sure we're getting that at a really fair, reasonable price to determine a really fair and reasonable ROI. And as you can look at ROI across your various elements of the media mix, it helps make the right choices um, to optimize. 
and you should never go full ROI. You know, it's it's one tool in the um, in the marketing mix that you can use to adjust your investment. But we are trying to look at you know how we make sure we reach a broader group of consumers as possible from an awareness perspective, and then we convert them through the funnel into uh, into trial and repeat. And we know our product plays a huge role at the at the back end of that in terms of converting from an original trial to repeat. But there's a bunch of levers that we can use between awareness and trial, and we just need to keep monitoring, assessing, and trying to figure out which ones work best in what combination. Do you think those, you know, traditional media should be worried about what retailers are up to? Because it, 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 it seems tempting to be able to get as close as you can get to a purchase decision, whether it be, you know, in-store or online in the e-commerce plays that they've got. Um, should media be worried? And are you how significant is your changing in budgets at the moment? I think I think things are going to ebb and flow. I don't think I, I would never see us as Arnott's moving everything into retail media because you know that's not how you grow brands and businesses over time. That's how you might optimize the short term conversion, which is important in any given year when you're trying to hit some numbers. Totally, but you know if if you want to really step back and figure out the long term growth plan, growth plan for your brands and your business, you've got to have broad awareness building, broad emotional driving connection work and you, know, you need to have those elements of the media in your mix at the right balance and then you need the back-end conversion stuff to drive the right conversion to sales and it's a constant balancing act you know number of channels number of brands number of players number of locations in that conversion funnel that you can really get after all one way to brand building is dangerous all the other way to immediate sales conversion is is dangerous but somewhere in the middle we've got to find the right spot for us got it and so where is where does uh, retailer media sit inside Arnott's? is it with and this is usually with e-commerce teams some of the other big multinationals we see like nestle have moved um, their retailer media and the e-commerce units into the under the sales function not marketing um, is that what's going on with your crew with, with with the business yeah no that's not where we are um so we've we've got it sitting within marketing at the moment and i'd say we're still very much at a fledgling status on both um our e-commerce business and our retailer media investments uh but we are looking to learn quickly and to uh move quickly as needed to grow in that space so it's sitting within marketing um and again connecting all of our broader comms and awareness play through, uh, I think is is the bigger prize for us. So would retailer media now be what, 10, 15% of, of, of your spend, do you think? Yeah, I think it's sitting just below 10. It's, you know, again, right. a very low percentage of the mix, something that we are testing and learning from and something that we are having the right conversations with our retail partners about where and when we might choose to invest more. And just broad, more broadly, um, your overall ch- um, media and channel mix um, f- for ad spending and marketing, are you switching between channels um, in any with any significance at the moment, or do you see that coming? Yeah, no, we're not planning on making any any dramatic changes. You know, every year we continue to optimize, and we do make small shifts from channel to channel, or from um, uh, from brand to brand, even to keep optimizing our mix. Um, but nothing dramatic coming up. No. Let's go to very quickly attention uh, attention measurement, uh, advertising attention, and, and measuring the actual engagement levels, people looking at ads and seeing them and noting them, um, which is obviously another layer that sits over the, the old sort of uh, reach argument and impressions, if you like, and opportunity to see. What do you make of the attention uh, debate and around advertising? Is it valid? 
oh, I can't wait to see this space grow. Um, you know, I think this this is super exciting and being able to understand the connection between engagement and attention and then doing something as a result, thinking something, feeling something, doing something, I think it's the missing link or could potentially be the missing link that we've been looking for as marketers to make sure that we can really close the loop on everything we're doing and uh, and continue to optimize and continue to grow. It, it For me, there's always some missing link between what you're doing and the results you're seeing. And everyone's got a bunch of opinions on what it is and why it is. But I think attention is, is, is super exciting. And I can't wait to see where this space goes. Are you doing any trials or you just, where are you at with this? We are not trialing yet. We are watching and learning. And uh, I hope we'll be running some, some trials in the next few months. Quickly, what about in-housing and bundled services, agency services like you have with Publicis and, and the neighbourhood? You've seen it both ways in your in your career. You've seen sort of, you know, bundled in-house, single stop, shop, shop stop, whatever that might be, um, and, and, and diverse supplier base, uh, partner base. Um, what's your what's your read on the upside and downside to both models, Jenny? Yeah, um, for me, the key thing about selecting an agency model because I believe any agency model can work, whether it's a one-stop shop or whether it's a really diversified agency village. Um, the key is getting back to what you actually need as a client, what your business needs, what your brand needs, and how best you service that. And then I think making the right choices that allow you to um, to see that through and deliver what you need. So I, I, I don't have an opinion. I'm not one way or the other, but based on the business and the needs, you, you make the right choices for you. Final one is a state of marketing talent coming through, what you're seeing. How different is, is, the, is the talent, the emerging talent, the, the people that are going to replace you? Um, uh, what, what's different about them to maybe what you were seeing five or 10 years ago? Is there a difference? I'm really excited by some of the marketing talent we've got coming through. Um, you know, at Arnott's, we run a graduate program. Uh, last year we had 20 graduates in the program. This year we've got 30. So I've got eight this year in my broader team across right. marketing and digital and social. I wish when I was a grad, I had the confidence that they've got. I wish when I was a grad, I had those sorts of access to, you know, senior people and those sorts of programs to help you develop at a really early age. So I'm excited by what they can do clearly a very different skill set to what I learned when I was at uni back in the day and probably what you learned yeah. back in your day. Yeah. But it's super exciting. You know, it's 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 interesting to watch them think and watch them grow, but the confidence that they come out of uni with at this day and age is straight ahead where I was. They're digital oh, natives, agree. obviously, um, you know, much more analytical in terms of what they can do. And, you know, I think our job as, as marketers and leaders is to teach them the, the rest of the stuff that they need to learn coming out of uni to help them uh, to grow and grow really quickly. But we've got some great talent in the team. Right. Well, listen, I'm going to stop asking questions because I keep going. Jenny Dill, thanks for joining and look forward to um, an update with, with, you know, later in the year when we see some big bang. I think I suspect there's some big bang things happening. You hint at it. You won't you won't go in detail, but there's something coming. So look forward to um, how that work looks. Um, thanks. Thanks for the time. Stay safe, Jenny Dill. Great. Thanks, Paul. This MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre, that's more. Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.